Right. Um, well, it is my privilege to bring to you the word this morning, and, and I appreciate all of you who have uh, uh, been praying for me and been praying for uh, this service today. And uh, <clears throat> I have um, been, when Phil asked me to preach, which, which was over a month ago, two months ago, um, I knew exactly what text I was going to. It's been on my heart, as I said, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the band. Um, and I wanted to get that out there to you guys so that you were, maybe if you would like to, to follow along and study the text as well, you could do that. <clears throat> but uh, it, it is a great, great parable, and uh, it's a great text. Um, I'd like to tell a little story. On June 10th, 1990, British Airways Flight 5390 was on its way to Malaga, Spain. The flight was under the command of 43-year-old Captain Tim Lancaster, along with First Officer Alistair Atkinson. At an altitude of 17,300 feet, Captain Lancaster had loosened his lap strap, which was pretty common practice. And it was about at this time that two of the cockpit windows exploded outwards, sending an explosive decompression into the cabin, causing a massive air rush, which sucked Captain Lancaster out of the cockpit. The captain's feet, however, got caught onto the control deck, which sent the plane into a steep dive. And after an intense struggle to move the captain's legs out of the way with the help of the flight crew, uh, <clears throat> Second-in-command Atkinson was able to regain control of the plane and take it out of its dive. This action, however, left Captain Lancaster free to be completely sucked out of the cockpit. This was prevented by the number three steward of the flight crew holding onto, his le onto the legs of the captain as he dangled lifelessly out the window. Unfortunately, the wind and G-force was too strong for the flight crew to bring Lancaster back in. So there, at over 10,000 feet, Captain Lancaster Caster's helpless body dangled until the emergency landing was made. Miraculously, he was still alive and was immediately taken to a nearby hospital where he was treated for frostbite, bruising, shock, fractured, uh, fractures to his right arm, thumb, and wrist. Now, in such an incident such as this, there's a lot of things that come to our mind. Always wear your seatbelt. Don't fly British Airways. Uh, <laughs> improper bolts were used in, in the fastening and securing of the windows, bolts that were not long enough, which was the cause for them to break. Um, have a flight crew with upper body strength. It's a good one. But <clears throat> what most comes to mind in the case of this is at, that, at those moments, what is truly important in this life our text this morning definitely brings this question to the forefront of our minds and is without a doubt one of the most important questions we will ever ask ourselves. In chapter 13 of the Gospel account of Matthew, a parable is given. This chapter is, is chock full of parables. It's a parable chapter. <clears throat> There's about eight parables total that teach different aspects to the kingdom of God. Um, <clears throat> there is the parable of the sower that explains as to why some enter the kingdom and others do not. There's the parables of the wheat and the tares and the net 
which teach the distinction and final destination of those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside of it. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven reveals the power, influence, and scope of this seemingly small kingdom. Our text this morning is that of the parable of the hidden treasure and pearl of great price as it's been come to known. The teachings of these parables can be understood at face value, even though some scholars, as I was reading through some commentaries, totally missed the point of it. <clears throat> um, it is in this, these parables that our Lord is conveying the preciousness of this kingdom. If you are not there, please take your Bibles and, and turn to the chapter 13 of Matthew, and we'll be looking at 44, verse 44 through 46. Only three verses for you this morning. So hopefully it won't be too long of a sermon. Um, I've entitled this sermon, The Greater Treasure. Last Sunday we we watched Pirates of the Caribbean, so there may be some influence there when it came to naming uh, the sermon. But uh, whatever. Um, I'm really bad at sermon titles. I don't know why. It's one of the most stressful parts for the sermon for me. Um, but, but the greater treasure. I'm going to go read the text, and, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Bow with me. Father, we humbly come before you this morning faced with the uh, task, task that I have of proclaiming your word. It is a task that I am privileged but not deserving of. And Lord, it is my prayer that this morning you would convey to your people your word, that you would teach them, that you would edify us this morning. And God, that you would reveal Christ all the more beautiful to us. May our adoration, may his exaltation, may your glory be done here this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us here, that you would reveal sin in our lives, that you would use your word to convict, that you would use us, use the, your word to, to bring about repentance. Lord, be with me, and I thank you, God. We ask and pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> again, this parable is a parable, or this, this chapter is a chapter of parables. And the parables that are given in, in these two scenarios convey the exact same thing. They are pretty straightforward. Uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of digging necessarily that needs to be done to understand these parables. 
<clears throat> they are very significant, very uh, re almost repetitive, which is very common uh, in this time. You would repeat things in another way to reinforce what you were trying to teach. Uh, and, and while the parables are, is pretty straightforward, there are still a lot of other aspects we can learn from its teachings. I have for you this morning four principles that I have taken, that I have seen in the text. Four principles within these parables that are conveyed. So let us dive in. And we'll be taking the text, not necessarily line by line, but as a whole. And let's begin in our first point, the concealment of the treasure. The concealment of the treasure. In both instances, we see that this treasure, in one way or another, is hidden, concealed. Now, it is obvious that the, the treasure of uh, hidden in the field is, is hidden because it is buried. No one can see it. It was, it was, you're blind to it. You would walk right over it and not even know it's there. However, the treasure of this pearl was out in the open. But its value, its preciousness was hidden from others. If that were not the case, it would obviously have been snatched up by somebody already or not even be sold at all. The intrinsic um, value of both these treasures are apparently hidden. This field looks like any other field. When someone would pass by, they can look at this field and see that it was land like any other land. It might have, could be maybe appreciated for the good soil. Maybe it got great sun. It was maybe a good place to, to have a crop. One can see the value in it by, by selling that which the land yields. But, and the pearl likewise could be seen in its face value as something that you could use to, to beautify something, to sell and, and make a profit off of, invest in. And so it is with the outside world looking into Christianity, is it not? Our, our faith, Christian faith, can be looked at, at in the outside world. And it can be appreciated. It can be looked at as, no, this is good for you. It's good for, for society. You have a, a moral guideline that benefits everybody. Thou shalt not murder. That's pretty good. That helps me out. Even though I don't believe in your religion, I'm glad that you believe that you should not murder me. I'm glad that you believe you should not steal from me. Lie to me. I can appreciate your religion. I can appreciate your faith. Christianity has brought about the uh, start of hospitals, schools, orphanages. These are all good things that, that can be admired from the outside in, looking in. I, I hear all the time people say to me that I enjoy, I really like the traditionalism of Roman Catholicism. I just like, you know, the cathedrals. I like the... You know, I like the little beads that they wear. It's, I mean, just the, just the whole traditionalism of it. I like that. 
I like the family-centeredness of uh, the Mormon religion, right? I hear that a lot. It's, they're just really focused on family, and it's a beautiful thing. Not to mention that family tree that they'll do for you is pretty cool. The inward-centeredness and, and nirvana that the Eastern religions bring, that's a, that's a, that could be a, seen as a beautiful thing. I like yoga. But the true treasure of the Christian faith, the true treasure of God's word, yields a treasure unlike any other. Yields a treasure that no other religion can if one simply digs into its depths. This truth is seen in the great multitude that follow Jesus, is it not? We read of, of, of a, a great crowd, thousands and thousands of people who are, who are following Jesus and, and they, they long to, to see the next magic trick. They long to, to, to get that next free lunch, free dinner, the loaves and the fish. Heck, he's a, he's a great candidate to overthrow our Roman oppressors. I like this Jesus. I see some good in him. But Christ's true identity and his true worth was hidden from them, and it can be seen as what they desired from him. This elusiveness of the gospel is made evident in the fact that we're studying a parable at all. What do I mean by that? Look over the same, same exact chapter over at verse 10, if you will. Verse 10, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 17. And you see there it says the purpose of parables. It reads, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The purpose of these parables was because the truth that they conveyed was given to the disciples. It was to them that had been given, not to everybody else. And this idea of of the hidden kingdom would have, is something we don't like to hear, right? We think, no, no. But that just shows the, the hard-heartedness of man, the stubbornness of man. This idea of, of, a, of a hidden kingdom would be such an antithetical concept for the first century Jewish mindset at this time. Traditional Jewish apocalyptic teachings taught that the kingdom of God 
was to come at the end of the age. And it was to be anything but little. It was to be anything but hidden. I mean, think about um, how we view the second coming of Christ, right? It, that was the Jewish mindset. When you talked about the kingdom of heaven, this idea of it being small, starting small and then growing into something great, this idea of it being hidden, it, it was something that was, no, 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 no. When God's kingdom comes, everybody's going to know. He's going to, to lay siege to his enemies, lay siege to our oppressors. He's going to raise up the Jewish people, vindicate us. In the context of these parables, the kingdom of God is not seen as a future event to be anticipated, but rather a spectacle to behold in the present. This is because the kingdom of God is not found in a place. The kingdom of God is not found in an event. The kingdom of God was in their midst. The kingdom of God was found in a person. The person of Christ. The deity of Christ, his glory, his majesty were veiled and hidden from them. But once it was revealed... Try to remember how the disciples were. Uh, they just they, they couldn't really get it until after the resurrection, right? Until the Holy Spirit comes and they're completely different people, bold. You know, it, it's interesting. I always see that. It's so interesting that the disciples walk with Jesus for three years. They do ministry with him. And then after his death and burial, what do they do? I guess we got to go back to fishing. And they're found uh, out fishing, doing what they do, going back to their old lives. But it is after Jesus appears to them in the resurrection that we see this mindset change. And, and it's after uh, uh, Pentecost where, where we see the Holy Spirit, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they, they're bold for the Christian faith. They're out there. We see Peter is a completely changed person. Because that which was hidden has become revealed to them. And an exchange takes place. What was once concealed becomes revealed. And our lives in which were lost are now found. It is then we whose lives become hidden in Christ. Colossians 3, 3 2-4 states, Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think Bruce just posted that just not too long ago on, on band. And we'll kind of unpack that just a little bit more on our fourth point. We'll move now to our second point. The discovery of the treasure. The discovery of this treasure now, as I said, these parables are very similar. They convey and teach the same thing. And that, that's the purpose of them, being back-to-back -back the way they are. Um, they're to convey the importance of the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> the preciousness of the kingdom. But there are some differences that can be noticed and should be noticed. 
You have scenario one, a man who seems to stumble on this treasure by accident. Was not something he was looking for? Doesn't seem like it'd be something he's looking for. It's something that he stumbles upon. Perhaps he's working the field. And this was, I don't want to say common to find treasure, but it was very common due to Palestine's land long being used as, as, a, as a place for many battles, many sieges. There were no banks. There were no safe deposit boxes back then. So you would take whatever valuables, valuables you had and you would find a place that you could remember and you would bury them so that your stuff would not be plundered, so it wouldn't be taken. And if you were to survive, you could go retrieve them. But unfortunately, most times, people were killed or taken into captivity, never to return, having that treasure lost forever, unless, of course, someone stumbles upon it by accident. And this was most likely uh, the, the case here with this man. And some take issue with the seemingly shadiness of, of, of what he does, right? He finds a treasure that probably belongs, this land belongs to somebody else. And, and instead of going telling the person, hey, I just found some treasure on your land, you know, he, he, he buries it and he, and he goes and, and buys the land from that person, sells all he has to purchase the land and then possess the treasure. So people are like, ah, that's kind of shady. And if that's us, then you're missing the point of the parable. Okay, this is a parable. It's trying to teach us something. But also, I will say, in, in rabbinic law, if you were to stumble upon a treasure, something buried on someone's land, and you removed it from the earth, it didn't belong to whoever owned the land at the time. But if you came to a knowledge of something being buried or found something buried but left it there and then purchased the land, removed it, it would belong to, again, whoever owned the land at the time of its removal. So this was um, absolutely done within rabbinic law and tradition. There was nothing shady about his ordeal and, and his transaction. <clears throat> um, what would be dishonest if he were to take some of the treasure and use it to purchase the land in order to obtain the treasure in the first place. But he doesn't do that. He goes and, and sells all that he has, all his possessions, in order to buy the land so that this treasure could be his. In the second scenario, this merchant, this man who's a, who's a merchant, knows exactly what he's looking for. They say that he's a merchant in pearls and fine jewels. They say that he is, um, to be a merchant, that you, you would travel to distant lands, you would travel to different areas, and, and you would look you knew exactly what you were looking for, and you would go and you would, you would try to purchase things so you could resell them. And in this time, pearls were great value. We were of, of significant value. Um, and pearls are even valuable today, even though we can even kind of manufacture them. You know, we can kind of orchestrate the, the production of them. But... Um, but at this time, we have to understand that that technology didn't exist. Scuba gear did not exist. So what people would have to do is, is grab a heavy rock and, and find an area where they believe clams would be in, in or, or, is it oysters? Oysters, right? Not clams. Clams? Oysters. 
I need to do better on my research. I apologize. Um, and they would, they would take this rock and they would jump in the water with this rock and so it could sink them to the bottom as quick as they can. And they would look for and, and grab whatever they could and have to push up and, and, and get to, the, to get some air as, just as quickly as they descended. Now, this, doing this over and over again would have repercussions on the body. It would even kill some people. So you see that this act even added to, to the preciousness of this pearl, of pearls in general. They were a sign of great wealth. Um, Roman officials and governors, their wives would be uh, ordained in, in, in pearls. Um, they, would, they would put them in their hair. They would wear them as jewelry. Uh, and if you really wanted to show your wealth, you would dissolve a pearl in vinegar and then mix it into your wine and drink it. That just shows like, you know, that's like using dollar bills or a hundred dollar bills to wipe your nose and throw it out. It was, it was, you know, had that significance to it where you just showed your wealth off. These two scenarios encompass, though, the circumstances of all who enter the kingdom of God. There are those who, who may be interested, who may be looking necessarily. You think about the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, right? He was searching the scriptures and, and he longed to know what it was that these taught, but he didn't. He had no one to teach him. My salvation w was something similar to that. I've, I've always, even when I was a little kid, I've always, I don't know why, I, but I always was a theist. I always believed that there's a God. And maybe it's just growing up in America, we, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance. We, you know, we have God in that, and we were kind of taught, you know, one nation under God. So this idea of, of a God was always with me. And I always believed in God, but I didn't know what God I believed in. There's only one God. But I didn't know what I believed in. And it wasn't until I learned more about the Christian faith that I, I gave my life to Christ and I was interested in this. And then you have others. You know, th that first scenario encompasses, um, you know, the merchant who, who kind of knows what he's looking for and, and has an interest in, and is looking through things. Then you have the man who stumbles upon it. This the author of our text, Matthew, was one such person. He was not looking for Christ. He was not looking for salvation. He, he was a tax collector. Yes, he was hated by the Jews, but who cared? He had a lot of money. He had a good gig. Until Jesus interrupts his life, says, come, follow me. Think of the Apostle Paul. Definitely not looking for Christ. We're looking for his followers, for sure, to persecute them. But... Christ interrupts his life, casts them off, makes them blind, makes them an apostle for him. Think about Phil's testimony. Phil will be up there and he'll tell you himself. He had no interest in the things of God. He hated it. He thought it was the stupidest thing. He said, I would go to church with, with Rachel, who was dragging me there and had no interest. And I thought, I'll do it just to you know, keep her happy and get her off my back. And he saw people with raised hands crying. He said, this is the stupidest thing. These are the stupidest people. Until so one day, the word of God pierces him and he feels as though the pastor's talking directly to, to him and he's broken. He wasn't looking for salvation. He didn't care. He thought it was stupid until one day it just happened to him. We see that in scenario one that the man goes and sells everything he has out of joy over it. 
This is another aspect of the discovery of the treasure. The discovery of salvation, the discovery of Christ should bring about great joy. Now, this is not a superficial joy or simply feelings of happiness, but true joy, which goes deeper. It does not mean the absence of sorrow and sadness, but it is a contentment, a steadfastness, and an assurance because the hope that we have in Christ. John 15 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I remember an instance, gosh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, where a friend of mine um, was, was tattooing a girl who I used to work with. And I remember walking in and he said, hey, did you hear that you know, she gave her life to Christ? Which was a shock to me. And I said, really? She's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I went to this thing with my mom and you know I said a, I said a prayer and I was like that's awesome praise God yeah the, the joy was not there at all uh, it was almost that there was embarrassment over it um, and, and unfortunately uh, I realize that her, her faith was superficial, and her life over the many years since then has proved that. Salvation was superficial, the same. One thing about genuine believers that I have noticed, one thing about true conversion that I've noticed is that even baby Christians have a joy in them. There's something about them, and it, it convicts me at times. Because we can kind of get dull, can't we? We can kind of sometimes lose that joy. And when someone becomes saved, they just they, they can't get enough of this. They want to talk about Christ. They want to they know more. They're hungry. And they're joyful. They're like, I don't know what the hypostatic union of Christ is, but let me tell you, he saved me. I can't tell you everything about the Institutes of Calvin, but I know that I was blind, but now I see. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And it's so funny is that those are the same people who are probably the most uh, evangelists, the biggest evangelists. They're always going around, hey, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you what he's done for me. And I'm always like, man, you don't know anything about the Bible. You became a Christian like two seconds ago. And you're already bringing people into church? What the heck? I suck. Uh, um, you know, they're, they're, but isn't that not true? We, there's, even in, and when the baby believers, there's a joy in them. <clears throat> uh, it's true joy, which is only found, can only be found in Christ. It is a joy that is everlasting. Move on to our, our third point. The cost of the treasure. We have the hidden, or the, the concealment of the treasure. We have um, the discovery of the treasure, and now we will look at the cost of the treasure. Now, despite these differences, the response of these two men were the exact 
same. Their discoveries lead to the desire to make their treasure, this treasure, their own. So great was the worth of what they discovered, they sacrificed all to obtain it. They both sell all they have in order to obtain this true treasure. Now, I want to be very clear that salvation is a gift. It is by grace through faith, not of ourselves so that no man may boast. It is only by God. We can never earn it. We can never obtain it. There are no amount of good deeds done or, or wealth given or knowledge obtained that would allow us to be deserving of salvation. We cannot earn it. It is free. It is a free gift. And I want to be very clear on that. But even a free gift comes with a cost. That, and that's the point here that I'm trying to make is that this cost is, is the cost of the free gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Jesus was clear on this point. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 27, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Universal negative, cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. Obviously, he's not telling you to love your enemies but hate your mother and father. What he's saying is that in comparison to your love and devotion to me, your love for your family, your children, even your own life looks more like hatred compared to the love you have for me. It doesn't even come close. <clears throat> we can think of the uh, encounter that Jesus had with the uh, rich young ruler in Mark 10 who asked him one of the most vital questions that anyone can ask, right? What must I do to have the internal life? What must I do? As if there was something we could do. You see, Jesus uh, challenges him, does he not? He says, you know the commandments, obey, love, love your neighbor, love, honor your father and mother. He says, no, 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 I got that. I got it. I've done those things. Check, 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 check. Am I good? Is there anything else? He says, yeah, there's one more thing. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and you follow me. He says he just walked away. Why? Because he was rich with possessions. You see, this young, rich ruler thought, all the commandments, I got them down. He says, you think so? Let's start with number one. Have no God before me. Go sell your possessions. Failed. He was willing to follow Jesus as long as it didn't interfere with his true love and treasure. Likewise, in Luke chapter 9, 59 through 60, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Sounds kind of harsh, right? I just want to go to a funeral with my dad. No. It's not what Jesus, Jesus, what he's saying to Jesus is, let me get my inheritance first. I am willing to follow you, Jesus. I'm, I am down. 
I'm gonna, I'll follow you. Let me just get, let me get a good savings though first. If I get this, then I will do this. If, if I feel comfortable here, if I get this treasure, then I will make you my treasure, okay? Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how it works. <clears throat> you cannot have the world and Christ as well. This is the issue that I have with the prosperity gospel that is being proclaimed. Uh, the issue I have with the vast majority of American evangelicalism. The gospel is promoted with no mention of repentance, sin, or self-denial. This is why the prosperity gospel is so prominent today. That's why it's so successful. You get the best of both worlds. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You get the promises of God along with the loves of the world. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace, a grace that costs nothing. This is a false presentation of the gospel, a counterfeit, a a cubic zirconia version of the gospel. It looks good from afar, but when examined, is of no real value, and it cannot, will not save. This merchant would not be satisfied with a pearl that looked like the real deal. He didn't look down and say, well, this one has great value. The one next to it, no, it doesn't have great value, but it's pretty, it looks good close to the real deal. And I'll just go with that. He was not happy with the counterfeit. He was not content with anything less than this pearl that he knew had great, knew that had great worth. He would not be satisfied with simply having a knowledge of the pearl or having experience with the pearl, nor did he even try to haggle the price. You notice that? Sold all that he had. No price is mentioned, but maybe, I mean, obviously there was a price. But sold all that he had. He didn't try to haggle the price down so that it wasn't as costly to him. For he understood its worth. So precious it was to him that he was willing to give anything, everything to have it. And so it is with Christ. If you desire to have Christ, you must be willing to part with all for him, to leave all to follow him. You must be, be prepared to abandon all that stands in opposition, competition, or hindrance from obtaining this greater treasure. You will not be satisfied with just an experience with Christ. I meet people all the time that say that, like, I used to go to church. I went to church a couple times. I, I liked it. I, I, actually, you know what? I'll tell you what. I had a really great experience. I haven't been back in like eight years, but I, you know, but I had a good experience. This merchant wasn't happy with just holding this pearl and experiencing it or even looking at it from afar. He had to have it. It had to be his. He craved it, longed for it. And so it must be with those who are in Christ. 
Luke 14, 27 through 29, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Our God is a jealous God who will not share our affections or devotions. We, likewise, must count the cost because there is one. We must be like King David who will not offer to God that which costs us nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. And that may be you this morning. When you examine your life, really contemplate. You're willing to add Christ to your life, but you're not willing to make him your life. You like the idea of Christ as Savior of your life, but not Christ the Lord over your life. You're willing to have sacrificial moments in your life, but not a sacrificial life. But if Christ is not everything to you, he might as well be nothing to you. The very call of Christ is not come and try. It's come and die. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Following Christ may cost you relationships, may cost you comforts, may cost you worldly privileges and pleasures. But this cost, I tell you, is not without reward. Which leads me to my fourth and final point, the value of the treasure. The value of the treasure. The action of these two men is is foolish to those who are unaware of the value in which they are getting uh, possession of. From the outside, again, this field, this pearl, seems like any other. But to go sell all you have for it, it seems stupid. A waste of their money and possessions. A waste of their time. They are throwing all their eggs in, into one basket, which is not smart. Those who are ignorant of the treasure are blind to its value. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Going back to Colossians 3, what it, what it, this is what it means to have our lives hidden in Christ. To the outside world, our life shouldn't make sense to them. It should be weird. They should look at it and say, yeah, I mean, I don't think I could give up football every Sunday. Maybe I've got, I mean, I, hey, I'm down to come Easter. Uh, maybe Christmas too, as long as my team's not playing. You know, I... I'm willing, to, I'm willing to have sacrificial moments, but a sacrificial life, that seems dumb. You, you base your life off of a book. You, 
I, I don't know, man. Every Sunday and throughout the week, your time, your talents, your money you give? Yeah. I mean, to each their own, not for me. It seems absolutely foolish. But this is what it means to have our lives wrapped up and hidden in Christ. It's because they do not know Christ. Because they do not know Christ, therefore cannot understand the lives of those who are wrapped up and hidden in him. Because you cannot understand and appreciate the Christian faith if you do not know the founder and perfecter of it. Hebrews 12, 2. These two individuals were both willing to give up everything because of their faith, which convinced them that the treasure that they were going to possess was far more valuable. It was more valuable than all their possessions. It was more valuable than all of it combined. They were convinced that they needed this treasure more than anything and everything else in their lives. Because we will never deeply, truly value something until we first understand our need of it. And this is the problem with the way the gospel is presented today, is it not? Many evangelical churches, especially here in the West, we, we, present, we do not present man's needs. We may present his immediate needs, his superficial needs, but not his needs for a Savior. Jesus is presented as a life coach who is a, the power source that we are to tap into to get what we need, to make our dreams come true, to accomplish what we set out to accomplish a mixture of the right amount of faith with the right prayer, then we can lay claim to whatever we want. He is obligated to give it to us. The emphasis is on God meeting our temporal needs, not necessarily our eternal ones. He is sought by many for the blessings of health, wealth, and prosperity. And this false portrayal of the gospel breeds false converts. I, there's a street evangelist, you may know him, Ray Comfort. He's been around forever. I think he's Australian. And he goes around, and, and uh, <clears throat> I read one of his books, and he had a great analogy. Um, unfortunately, Todd White used this analogy not that long ago, and it made me, like, not want to use it because he used it. But I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because he used it. It's still a great analogy that stuck with me. And uh, basically what he says is he gives a, a scenario that if you're on a plane, I got planes going on in my sermon. Um, that wasn't intentional. Um, but if you were on a plane and you're sitting there and you have a very long flight, and the stewardess comes up to you and says, is there anything you need for your flight? Would you like a water, peanuts, parachute? You ask, you say parachute? Yes, would you like a parachute? Why would I want a parachute? Well, sir, a parachute will make your flight much more comfortable. It will bring you happiness on this flight. 
It'll help you on this flight. You think to yourself, I'll take a, this sounds like a really good parachute. I'll take it. It's free? Yeah, it's free. Here you go. You put it on the parachute, you put it on, you kind of have it a little loose or whatever so that you're comfortable. But two to three hours in, that parachute is making you lean a little forward, making your back cramp a little bit. The straps are digging into your legs. And you start to realize quickly that this parachute is not making my flight more enjoyable. I'm not more comfortable. And then you start looking around. Nobody else is wearing a parachute. And not only that, you see them smirking at you. You see them laughing at you, pointing, mocking you. And you start to feel like you were sold, not sold a bag of goods. So you, it's only a matter of time before you say, forget this. And take off the parachute and throw it down. It's not what I expected it to be. Scenario two, steward asks you, would you like anything to drink, some peanuts, parachute? Why would I want a parachute? Because, sir, I'm not supposed to say anything. But sometime during this flight, this cabin is going to rip open and suck every one of us out. And if you do not have this parachute, you will perish. You will die. It's 100% guaranteed. Uh, yeah, I'll take that parachute. Is, it, I, is there a cost? You could take every, here, it's my wallet. I didn't take everything. I need this parachute. Give me this parachute. And you put it on. And you don't put it on loosely. No, you strap that sucker on. You make it tight. Oh, there's a manual with it. I'm going to read this manual. I want to know exactly how this works because I'm going to need it. I'm going to study this manual. I need this parachute fastened securely and properly on me, and I want to know how it works because I intend to use it. I'm chair, and man, I don't care how much my back is cramping. Six hours into the flight, my back is cramping. My legs are, are I don't know if you ever wore a harness, but it rides up a little bit. They're not comfortable. And, and uh, you're like, you know what, I don't care, though. I can't feel my legs. The blood circulation is cut off. I don't care. I don't care how uncomfortable I am. I don't care how I look. I want this parachute. I need, I have to have this parachute. And then you look around, and you see people mocking you and snickering, and they're not wearing a parachute. You don't care. Would you not turn to them and say, you don't understand. There is an imminent danger, and you will all die. You will all perish. Please, take a parachute. Strap it on. Cling to it. You need it. Please, I'm telling you out of love, grab a parachute. Because if you don't, you will perish. This is how the gospel needs to be portrayed to this dark and dying world. The gospel may not make your life more comfortable. It may not make it easier. You may have hardships. It may cost you everything. But it'll be worth it. 
Because without the gospel, without Christ, you are without hope. You cannot appreciate the good news of the gospel until you first understand the bad news of man. You cannot, you cannot only under, understand the, the value and precious of your salvation when you understand your indebtedness to it. When we properly understand this, we see everything else as vain pursuits. The Apostle Paul understood this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. What is he saying? I was a religious superstar. I... I was well thought of. I was top of my class. I was, I was famed. I had great, I was on the path of great prestige. Basically, I had it made. Do you understand that about me? I, I mean, if someone wants to talk about all this, this prestige and all these things, trust me, my former life, I had more to boast about before Christ. Before this great treasure was made known to him, it was only after this that Paul says, I count those things as a loss. I count it as rubbish, as garbage, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ the Lord. All the prestiges of the world, all the riches of the world, all the fame, everything, everything this world has to offer us is garbage in comparison to Christ. It is Christ who is the most precious treasure. And so it should be with us. The sacrifice is not necessarily always easy to make at first, but once we do, we realize how vain and trivial those things were in the first place. All the things that our flesh fights so hard to keep to hold on to is all we need to leave and let go of. And once we do, we look back and we see how silly and trivial and stupid those things were in comparison to Christ. Even our own lives. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 37, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Missionary Jim Elliott said it best. It's in your bulletins. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus Christ is the greater treasure. He is the only true treasure. And this treasure will never depreciate in value. It can never be lost. It can never be stolen. Nor can it be forfeited. Its value is guaranteed. And there's nothing that can compare to it. For it is eternal. 
and that which lasts the longest is worth the most. H.B. Charles. I believe that it is this knowledge of the preciousness of Christ, of the gospel, that is the basis of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that we possess. Philippians 4, 7. And it only comes from a saving knowledge of Christ. When we understand this truth, when we understand that the richness that we have in Christ, when we marvel over it, we can stand firm through anything with that peace. Because our hope, our treasure, is everlasting, it's immovable. If I had a billion dollars in the bank and I, I lost a hundred bucks, Christ is, is worth so much more. And when we understand this, we can endure with a peace through financial loss, the loss of relationships, the loss of our comforts, the loss of our health. Even when we get that diagnosis result that we weren't hoping for, we can stand firm. We can have a joy, a peace that surpasses all the world's understanding. Because no matter what happens to us in this life, our treasure is still intact. And our riches can never be taken. Ah, <clears throat> oh, sorry. Now, I have a couple applications here. I want us to think back to the story of Captain Lancaster. What if you found out that during the interview he was saying, uh, and what was when they asked, what was going through your mind when you're stuck out there? By the way, you can, I have pictures on my phone. Um, you can actually see pictures of his lifeless body hanging outside this, this uh, window on the plane. And you can actually see pictures of uh, them holding his legs. There's cameras in the cockpits and stuff, so there's actually pictures of, of this. But what if, what if during the interview they said, what was going through your mind at the time? And he said, you know, when I got sucked out, I was, it was just everything was so happening so fast, but I mean, I had just went to the bank and I took out thousands of dollars in cash. It was in my pocket, so I was like trying to keep that from flying out. <clears throat> and then before I knew it, my coat, which is, I, I love that coat. It's my, my aviation. I, I got it. It has all my pins of, of all my accomplishments on it. Um, it was being ripped off, so I was trying to hold on to that. And then I noticed my watch. I love this watch. It's a, it was given to me. It's an expensive watch. And I noticed, like, it was flinging, so I'm, like, holding on to that with my pinky. And then my ring, you know, that's trying to fly off. So, I mean, I was just, and I was thinking to myself, oh, man, what is it going to do for my reputation? What is it going to do for my, uh, 
my career? Am I going to be a laughing stock? I couldn't help but thinking about that as I hung out the window. And I thought to myself, uh, man, I, there's, you know, I wonder if I'm going to have any health issues after this. Am I still going to be able to live the life that I did before this? My legs are hurting right now. Getting frostbite. And I was hurting. And I just couldn't think of, like, man, I really like to play tennis still. You know? And I wonder if this was going to mess up with my tennis. I mean, is it going to mess with my, my way of life previous to this? I just couldn't help thinking about that. And all the while, my cash is starting to fly out, and I'm trying to grab it, you know? But I also had my watch, you know? So it was, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. <clears throat> If that were the case, would you not say you're crazy? You were to be consumed with worry of anything else but your life is just madness. It's foolishness. That's what you were worried about up there? Did you not realize you were just you were being literally hung on by the strength of another and that strength was fleeing? That you were about to die. And you were worried about cash flying out of your pocket? Losing some watch? Your reputation? Your previous life? Your hobbies? That's what you were thinking about? That's utter foolishness. But I tell you, if you are here today and you're not in Christ, and you're willing to walk out those doors... You are a bigger fool. You are placing your trust in yourself, seeking in a never-ending pursuit of that which will not, cannot satisfy you. As St. Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, end quote. You likewise are in the same situation. You're dangling helplessly, held on by the arms of the grace of God in whom you have offended and set yourself up as an enemy of. And at any moment, you will fall. Where worldly treasures cannot save you, and are of no worth. Tomorrow is not promised to you. Would you take hold of Christ? Would you long to make him your own? Would you cling to him? Today is a day of salvation. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I likewise would like to think of Captain Lancaster's story. During an interview years later, he says, oh, man, I was so lucky. I was so lucky. But as I look back, just stinks. Lost my jacket. Lost my ring. Lost my watch. Kind of became a laughing stock. Uh, I guess that's just bad luck. I think about those things and I just, I miss them. 
Would you not likewise say, what are you talking about? Who cares about those things? You are extremely blessed. You're lucky to be alive. You walked away with the greatest possession, life. But so this can be with us, can it not? You know, I, I walk into my line of work. I, I walk into backyards, some very nice houses of people who build pools that are worth more than I will probably ever make. And see the comforts and see these things, and, and I can be like, man, this sucks. Must be nice. If you would, take your Bibles real quick and turn to 1 John. 1 John. And look at chapter 5 with me. First John chapter 5, verse 20, very in there. John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Then he ends with this statement. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. End. Very weird. Very weird way to end this book, this letter. He talks about throughout this letter the, how those in Christ have overcome the world, the eternal life that we as believers have in Christ, the, the hope and confidence we have in Christ, the overcoming of sin that believers have in Christ. Just a list of wonderful truths that we as believers have in Christ. Then he ends with those four words. Keep yourself or guard yourself from idols. And what's interesting is that John is speaking to believers. This is because even though we have obtained this great treasure, over time, our gaze can be swayed at times. that our focus is placed more on what we do not possess rather than what we do. We can at times forget the richness that we possess in Christ. And idols aren't always made of gold and silver. They are anything that competes with our full affection and devotion to Christ. It is anything that pulls our gaze away from him. It could be a career. It could be a, a house. It could be a, a boat, a prestige. It could be a boy band. You know who you are. It could be a relationship, a spouse. It could be our children, which... These things are not necessarily bad. They're good. It's good. Children are good. They're, they're a treasure, and we should treasure them. We should love them. But even good things can become bad 
if they take our focus off the greater thing. <clears throat> what is it as you examine yourself this morning? I got to say, this sermon was probably one of the easiest sermons I had to write just because of the parables. It's pretty straightforward, and, and it just came very natural, the writing of it, until this point. This wrecks me. It could be your pride, your hate, your anger, anything that is more important to you than Christ. So as you examine yourself this morning, what is it that has your affections? What is it that consumes your time, consumes your thoughts, and consumes your desires? Is there anything that you trust, follow, fear, obey, serve, or love more than Christ? We in our fallen state are susceptible to such a sin. We can be like the Corinthians who, after receiving the treasure of the gospel, turn and desire to behave like the world they were saved out of. We can be like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, who, though on paper, seemed like the perfect church and checked all the boxes, but they had forgotten their first love. Christ. And this does not typically happen all at once. It's a gradual descent. Your prayer life becomes shorter and shorter until it's non-existent. Church seems less and less important. Before you know it, we have replaced those loves with the things of this world. This morning, my instructions to the believers in this room is the same to the unbelievers, if there be any. Behold Christ. Behold this great treasure. He is the great treasure, the priceless prize in which is worth more than all the kingdoms of all the world of all times a hundredfold. Be reminded of not only what you've been saved from, but what you've been saved unto. Remove any and all obstacles. Cling to him. Cherish him. And above all else, Remember how precious this treasure is, how priceless it is. Above all else, Christ is above all else. He is our greater treasure. Amen?